The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you make much of them. It, all, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Eric. So when I was starting to prepare uh, for the sermon, one of the things that I will do is I will uh, just kind of take the passage and read it through a couple of times. And I read through this one a couple of times, and I thought, what is going on here? Did any of you have that feeling? Context matters, doesn't it? We're going to walk through this passage, and it's actually, it's, it's, I shouldn't say actually, it's the word of God. It's rich, and it, and it has some important things for us um, to see. Now, we have to remember, when we go into a letter like this, that when we read epistles like Galatians, they, they were at one point letters, right? And so these were correspondence, uh, correspondence between Paul and between, between him and people that he had known and that he had served and that he had relational context with and he'd been an apostle to them. And so although these letters are very much God's living and active word for us right now, there is still a sense that we're reading somebody else's mail when we read these letters, right? Especially when we get into stuff like passages like this where it feels like there's just this kind of personal heart-to-heart moment and that's exactly what's happening in this passage. There's an old proverb. I can't, I've heard a lot of people say this proverb um, or, or, or this statement, but it's this. A parent is only as happy as their saddest child, and I've thought about that, and there's a part of me that wants to throw up a little bit of a caution and say that's, that, that can't be true and healthy at the same time. But the sentiment in that, in that statement, that a parent is only as happy as their saddest child, it, it, it's this, it's that, it's that parents, we feel our kids' struggles deeply. We feel them in ways that even our kids may not feel. Right? We recognize the complexity and the nuance and, the, and the, the inevitability of where certain struggles and certain life choices are headed. 
in ways that sometimes even our own kids don't, just don't have categories for. And we agonize, right? We grieve their losses. We, we feel their struggles. We, we, we agonize over their folly Why? because they're ours and because we're theirs and we're connected. And so in this letter, particularly in these verses, what we're getting, I think, is Paul writing to the Galatian church as a father. He's being a parent to them. And he's correcting children that he loves. He even calls them in the passage little children. And what we see in this text is we see raw frustration and we see deep affection coming through, both at the same time. And so let me tell you where we're gonna go uh, this morning so that you can have a category. Uh, you can have the categories. So really kind of two main parts to this. We're gonna walk through the text a verse or two at a time and just sort of explain what's happening here. And then we're gonna make some application uh, at the end of that. Uh, and the application is, is, I'm gonna tell you what the points are basically. I'm gonna make an application as a pastor to this congregation. So I'm gonna talk about that relationship for a moment. And then... The other three points are this. There's always more going on than we can see. Be patient. Anyone can be taken in by lies. Have mercy. The way of the gospel is not to abandon, but to engage, draw near. So those are the, those are the basic points. Be patient, have mercy, draw near. All right, so we walk through this passage. Paul begins by saying, become as I am, because I became as you are. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, in the context of the letter, Paul is telling these, Galatian, these Galatians who are Gentile converts, he's saying, be like Paul, be like the way Paul was when he was around them, right? So he was around them and he modeled for them what it meant to live as a believer in Jesus Christ who is free uh, from, from the, he's unencumbered by the burden of unnecessary ceremony and regulation and he's saying to them, I want you to live like you saw me living when I was among you. So remember, a lot of the context in this letter has been false teachers trying to put regulation and burden on these new believers. And Paul is, the whole point of this letter is Paul is fighting for them to understand that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. And you're not enslaved to these ceremonies. And so he, he's saying, be like I was when I was around you. I modeled this for you. And he's saying, he says, I became like you. And what he's saying is really pretty loaded because the false teachers are saying, you need to be really uh, Jewish in your practice of religion. And Paul came in saying, look, I have the pedigree of a very impressive uh, Israelite. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a rabbi, I'm trained, I, I, I'm smarter than anybody else in the room. Right? And he's saying, when I came and I lived among you, I became like Gentiles. I lived like this. So though he was this Jewish man with this impressive pedigree, he lived among them with the same kind of freedom that he's saying is theirs in Christ. So I want you to become as I am because I became like you are. That's what, that's what he's saying. Does that make sense? And then he says... It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. Now here we get into something that we just lack specific, specifics, right? We don't know 
what was going on with Paul. There are a couple places in his letters where he talks about affliction, he talks about a particular malady, a thorn in his flesh that he asked the Lord to deliver him from, right? We lack the specifics here, but apparently Paul was delayed in Galatia due to some kind of illness or infirmity, and he used that time while he was suffering to preach the gospel to these believers, and they've come to believe, and and they received him. He says this, he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. You received me like I was Jesus Christ himself. So though they had to receive and work with him while he was afflicted in some way that it seems like in this passage would have made people potentially uncomfortable to even be around him, He says they received both him and his message with joy, as though he was sent from Christ himself, and they counted themselves blessed to have believed the message. And so he's reminding them of where where they've been, who he was and how he was when he was around them, how their relationship started, the joy and the affection that was there. And then he asks the question, "What's, what's happened to all that? What has become of your blessedness? Because what's happening now is that sense of joy and affection and and, and blessedness that they felt toward Paul and the gospel has begun to fade and it's now being eclipsed by legalism and the legalism of these false teachers who only have ugly things to say about Paul and the gospel that he lives by. And it seems like in this passage what Paul is saying is your view of me is starting to sour. And then he talks about what they're saying. So we've walked through it, right? We're still walking through it. Here's where he says, they make much of you, but what they want to do is they want to shut you out. And he talks about flattery in here. And again, we lack a lot of specifics, but it's there in the passage and so we're just, we're inferring, but we're also letting the text guide us through what's being said here. And he's explaining, hey, look, these false teachers, whether you understand it, whether you recognize it or not, they're setting a trap for you. It's a trap that you're walking into. And the way that they're getting you to walk into it is they're baiting that trap with flattery. They're telling you things that are intended to engender your, um, your desire to listen to them and to please them. So maybe what they're saying to you is, that gospel that Paul's preaching, don't you, weren't you raised to understand that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is? You know, you're smarter than that. They're playing to them. And Paul is saying, don't you see that the goal of the false teachers is not to include you in the gospel? but it is actually to exclude you from the gospel. They're flattering the Galatians so that they will hold these false teachers in high regard, all the while the subtext of what they're teaching is you don't actually belong here. Not as they actually are. The gospel is not for Gentiles. That's the underlying message. If you want to be in this gospel, then just become like Jewish people, and that's how. But otherwise, this isn't really for you. And it's fascinating. I read this in a, in a, a commentator made this, pass, made this statement in passing, and it was fascinating to me. Because he just observed that the work that the false teachers are doing to try to get the Galatians to live by works is them actually living by their works. 
They're doing the work of living by works by proselytizing in this way. And I think of, you, you know, you think of people who um, will show up on your doorstep, knock on your door, and try to get you to convert to a religion, right? Part of what they're doing is practicing their religion, right? That work of proselytizing door to door is part of the way salvation happens. And so that's kind of what's happening here in this passage. We see them not only trying to persuade Gentiles to live by works, but they are living by works themselves in all the effort that they're putting into this. And Paul says, look, what they're, they're telling you, this is what it means to walk with God, but it actually excludes you as you are. And then he says, look, it's always good to be made much of. He's not saying that there's no point, there's no time to affirm and compliment and to speak well and to hold in high esteem. Paul does this in his own letters when he writes, like in the church to the Thessalonians. He, he, he says to, to them in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before God the Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Like he lavishes words of praise on people because, he, because he's, he feels affection and he's building that bond. He says, it's good to do that, but not for no reason. And here's where he gets paternal. He says, little children, right? You see Paul's affection for his struggling friends. They're being taken in. He sees it. They don't. And they're being taken in for the purpose of being shut out. And they can't even see it. And so as a parent with a child and the child is making decisions where the parent knows, I know where this goes. You don't, but I do. He's intervening and he cuts to the heart of the gospel because what they're teaching, these false teachers, cuts to the heart of the gospel. He said there's no longer Jew or Gentile and he loves them so much that he's agonizing over them and he says it's as though you need to hear the gospel all over again. It's like you need to be born again again almost, right? And you have to hear this is hard for Paul. This is tough for him because he's poured out his life. He struggled. The time that he was with them, he was lifting himself up off the mat to even preach the gospel to them because he was afflicted. And he poured himself into these people and they're starting to just falter and fracture and fall apart. And when he speaks of his grief, it's the same sentiment as the verse that came directly before this passage where he said from last week, I fear that my labor among you might have been in vain. Here he's saying, I feel like... Like, you, you haven't even been born again. Like, you, like, you, like, the gospel has not taken root in your heart. And so what he's looking for is he's looking for signs of life. He's fearing for their souls. And then he ends this passage, this little vignette, where he's kind of, in a way, he's kind of looking up from the doctrinal work that he's been doing, and he's putting down his pen and taking off his glasses, and he's saying, guys, what is happening right here, right? Can we just talk what's going on here? He ends this passage by saying, I wish I could be with you. I wish I could be present with you. And here he's modeling the gospel again, right? When he sees their struggle, he doesn't want to distance himself from them. He wants to draw near to them. And it's a picture of what Christ has done for us, right? The Lord sees the brokenness of the world. He sees our need for salvation. He sees us as we really are, that we're full of duplicity, that we're in love with ourselves, that we're easily lured into false belief, that we're fickle. And he doesn't write us off. Instead, what does he do? He comes incarnate. 
and he lives among us in flesh and bone and he lives in our place and he dies in our place. He dwells among us in order to reconcile us to God. And so Paul wants to do that. He wants, I wanna live incarnate with you. I wanna be with you while you're struggling here with this thing. Because the insidious nature of the false teaching is it proclaims to Gentiles, look, you're outsiders. You're outsiders to God. And so you have to follow a path of ceremony and ritual and observance of feasts and holy days. And that gospel is also proclaiming something insidious to Jewish believers. And what it's proclaiming to them is your security lies in just doing what you did before Christ came. Keep ceremony. Jesus is really unnecessary in this whole scheme. And Paul becomes a mother hen. He's fierce. And he's rebuking them. He's tender in his objective, but he's fierce in his rebuke. And he's trying to keep them in the faith. He's trying to keep them from apostatizing. So that's the passage. We walked through it. Well done. We made it. But it's good to see, right? It's good to see that he's, he's breaking down the argument, he's showing his affection, he's bearing his claws, he's contending for them, and he's also saying, I'm not disgusted with you, I wanna be with you, right? And so let's make some application as a way of kind of landing this sermon. And the first point, I guess, that I wanna touch on briefly is, well, it's about me. Paul's being a pastor here. Uh, and I thought about this this week in this, in this passage as I was preparing, that I have a u- very unique role in this church, and that is this, I am your pastor. That's who I am. So what does it mean that I'm your pastor? Well, I, I wanna tell you something, and this feels like a good opportunity to just tell you a little bit of a story. When our kids were uh, little in preschool, some kind of preschool situation, they were asked, what, is your, what do your parents do? And one of my daughters, when she was telling a preschool class what I did, she called me a Bible talker. (laughs) He's a Bible talker. And I thought, that's perfect. That's that's perfect. That's That's what I am. I'm a Bible talker. Back when Lisa and I got married, I didn't really know what we were gonna do. We went all the way through college and I felt uh, like I was gonna be involved in ministry in some capacity. I was a musician at the time, and I thought maybe it'll be in that capacity. I didn't really know, but there was something, even from the time I was in high school, where I had this sense, this unshakable sense, that my, my life of ministry would be to the local church, that it wouldn't, I wouldn't be a missionary, you know, that I would be a, a local church person in some way, shape, or form. And when we got married, we moved here to Nashville, and we lived in Bellevue, and I was, uh, we had like 12 W-2s between us in our first year of marriage. And um, one of the jobs I had was landscaping, which I love. Um, I know there are some landscapers here, uh, and I just, I find it such satisfying work that I could have been happy as a landscaper my entire life. And one day, it was summertime. I remember we were out kind of in, in Brentwood in one of these subdivisions that was just, it was nothing but, but just brown. It was, it, there was no plant life. All the houses that they were building were, were just studs, you know, and so it was just this kind of weird sort of 
tan landscape of no life. Nobody was living there, nothing was growing there. And I'm a landscaper and I'm there and I'm planting this tree uh, in front of a house that's gonna be, that's in the process of being built. And the ground was just hard as a rock and I have this spade and I'm just chipping away at the ground little by little and sweating and it's 100 degrees outside. And I'm standing in this hole with this big, like it's a three inch trunk of a tree, so a big old root ball, and I'm just chipping away at the ground. I'm standing in this hole, feeling like, I love this. Not many people would love this. I like this. And I felt like I heard the Lord in that moment, in that hole. And it wasn't an audible voice, and I don't want to weird you out, but I feel like I heard the Lord as clear as day say to me, this isn't it. And I knew what that meant. And I left that day knowing God's called me to be a pastor. And I went home and I told my wife, I said, I think the Lord is calling me to be a pastor. And she said, immediately, she said, I've been waiting for the day you were gonna walk through the door and say that. What do we need to do? And I said, I don't know. I came from Catholicism followed by non-denominational swinging from the chandeliers charismatics. I, we, did, we didn't really, I didn't know what to do. And we, we went to, a, uh, we went to a, a Christ community here in town at the time. And I called Scotty Smith and I said, I think God's calling me to be a pastor. And he said, great. And I said, I'm terrified. And he said, even better. And I, and I said, okay, what, what do I do? And he said, you go to seminary. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's, it's grad school for pastors. And I said, where is one? And he said, well, our denomination. I said, wait, we're a denomination? And he said, yes, we're in the Presbyterian Church in America. And I said, okay. So the Presbyterian Church in America is part of the church I belong to, and we have a, we have a seminary. And he said, yes. It's Covenant Seminary. It's in St. Louis. And within a couple of months, I was taking online classes, and within... Nine months we were moving to St. Louis and I went to seminary. And uh, I tell you that story to say, as I stand here on this platform and preach a sermon to you that I spent time preparing, I come from somewhere as your pastor. I come from a sense of calling. I come from two master's degrees that I got at Covenant Theological Seminary and being examined on the floor of the presbytery in Kansas and being examined on the floor of the presbytery here in Nashville when we moved here and going through long written and oral exams and being tested and, and wrestling and being challenged with what it is that I believe and can I articulate it clearly and what do I believe about the authority of scripture and the role of the church and all of these things. And I have to tell you that my life has taken some vocational twists and turns and everybody's does. You can't write the book on where things are gonna go for you. There's not been a day since I stood in that hole, in that subdivision that's now lush and overflowing in Brentwood somewhere, where I haven't been convinced that the Lord's call in my life is to be a pastor. And now, it's not a small thing to me that I'm your pastor. And it's, it's, it's something that matters to me a lot and I relate 
to the mother henishness of Paul that's seen in this passage because part of my job is to love, it's to shepherd, it's to proclaim truth, and when necessary, to confront. And I relate to the mix of ache and affection that Paul feels here. And I was talking with Scott and Stacy, uh, the three of us, they're the pastors of the other locations, Scott at Old Hickory and Stacy at Music Row. And we talk about our sermons every week. And something Scott said about the shepherd flock relationship is, that struck me is he said that the ache uh, that, that pastors feel for the holiness of the people in our congregation is a sign of a healthy pastor. That people need their pastors to give them Jesus, to give them the truth, to model living by faith. And what that means is I'm called then to model the pursuit of holiness myself while also leaning into my own weakness and my own dependence, even this morning, um, I whispered something into Bruce Williams here, one of our elders here, that's just about a struggle that I have from time to time, and it was a sentence or two that he's caught up on, about things I worry about, and I give that kind of stuff to him, because I'm not perfect and I'm not strong. But I'm your pastor, and man, that's a sacred thing to me. What pastors need from their congregations is we need to be held to a high standard. That's biblical, right? We need to be held to a realistic standard, too. And I feel like I enjoy the blessing of that here. I want to honor the role that the Lord has given me. I want to lead. I want to serve this congregation well. I want to be a spiritual leader. I'm reminded of what Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher, said. He said, what my congregation needs most from me is my own personal holiness. And that just resonates in my heart. So I think about this a lot. I think about this in this passage, that as I'm preparing to preach on this passage, I am not just expositing what's being said, but I'm doing it as a pastor, and not just as a general pastor, but as your pastor. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. But let's move on. I guess what I'm trying to say, here's what I'm trying to say. I love God's call in my life, and I love you, and I'm so thankful for what I get to do. There's always more going on than we can see, so be patient. In this passage, we read it, and we feel the tension, and what's happening is people are struggling. Well, here's the thing. We all struggle. And you notice that every appeal... Paul is making, every strong thing he's throwing at them is based on their relational bond. He loves them. He's trying to get through to them. They have a history together. They cared for him when he was sick. And Paul hasn't written these friends off. Even though they're on the verge of abandoning the gospel, he hasn't written them off. Because he knows them to be people who are in process. But they love each other. Paul loves them. He knows they love him. If we treat each other with love over time, then in those times when we need to say hard things to each other, we stand a much better chance of getting through. Right? Than if we have no relational capital whatsoever and we walk up to somebody and says, let me share something with you that concerns me about you. Right? That just usually doesn't go well. When love is the foundation beneath our conflict, we have great hope. 
for finding healing. That's why it's so vital that we love one another well over time. So people are having Super Bowl parties in their homes today and folks are going to gather and watch commercials and make comments and maybe root for a team and eat really healthy food. (laughs) That is not killing time. That is relational capital. It's time served and it's so valuable to do things like that, to celebrate with each other, to be around each other, to be able to love well over time involves a lot of things. But what it does is it gives us understanding, it gives us credibility when the people that we love struggle. We remember there's always more going on than people can see. And from that we learn to come alongside with patience and not just be done. Second, third, I guess. Anybody can be taken in by lies. Have mercy. Think about your own life. There have been times you believed things that you have since come to learn are not true. Correct? Logic would tell you that means there are things you believe now that are also not true that you may, in the Lord's kindness, come someday to learn I was off on that, right? At the time, though, false belief is compelling enough to persuade us and to believe it, and we all believe things that aren't true, and this is something that happened. For Paul, this is complicated, right? And For these people, because one of the consequences of the falsehood that the Gentile believers in Galatia are believing is, is turning their affection for Paul and, and causing it to begin to sour, and they're beginning to take aim at him. Maybe you've experienced this, where you've been the target of somebody's contempt because they were believing a false narrative. Has that ever happened to you? You're the target of somebody's contempt because they're believing a false narrative and it puts you, or maybe you're the person who has done this to others, right? You've held contempt for somebody else because you believe something about them that either wasn't true or wasn't the most charitable version that you could have believed about what was going on. And it can be so tempting in these situations to just kick people to the curb and say, forget it, I'm done with you. I believe enough and I know enough and I'm just done with you. Anybody can be taken in. Have mercy. What mercy looks like here is it looks like fighting for the truth which includes not only holding forth the beauty of what's true but also exposing the ugliness of what's false. And then last point. The way of the gospel is not to abandon but to engage Paul says, I want to be with you in person. Why? Because he grasps something that our generation needs to grasp desperately. And that is this. He grasps the limitation of written correspondence. (laughs) He just gets it. He's, He's writing this letter. Even as he's writing this letter, which is going to be canonized as part of the word of God, he's saying, man, I want to be face to face with you guys because face to face is better than a letter. If you're struggling with somebody that you love, meeting over coffee is usually better than an email. Discover the delete button on your, on your keyboard. I can't tell you, I'm a person who I, I have at times written long emails 
to address something and sent it because I've, here's what I would tell myself. I'm a word guy. I do better with, with writing it out. So I'll write the email and send it. never goes well. It really doesn't, does it? Because I can tell you one thing. None of you in this room are wanting to get a really long email from me talking about all the things that are frustrating to me. Even if it's really, really well written. <laughs> right? So, and here's the other thing. Sometimes we can spend an hour and a half, two hours on this long email that more could be resolved in a 15-minute conversation because you're face-to-face and you're talking. There's just wisdom here, right? Paul is saying, there's a huge conflict between us and what I want is I want to be with you so that we can talk about it. We have an enemy. There's an enemy that hates the church and that wants the church to die. And the way churches die is by not dealing directly with each other. And so he's fighting for this. The way of the gospel is not to abandon, but to draw near. Why? Because this is what Christ has done. It's what Christ has done for us. Jesus said many hard things to his disciples. He told his best friend, Simon Peter, when Simon Peter said, I don't think you should die, he said, get behind me, Satan, right? Peter, Jesus said some hard things to his friends, but what did he do? He kept them close. What are the ways he kept them close? He stayed with them. He gave them a seat at his table, which we're about to come to. Right? He gave them an eternal seat at his table. He called them to lead the church, which he described as his own body. That's keeping his people close to him. He sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. He stays close. Intimacy and proximity are the model that scripture gives us for how to love each other well. So be patient, have mercy, draw near. And in all these things, contend for what's true. I love passages like this where we see both the heart and the context of relational capital between Paul and the people he's shepherding. And yeah, it's a little bit like reading somebody else's mail at times. And in the next passage, he's going to go back to the doctrine stuff um, like he's been doing here. But here what he's doing is he's fighting for people he loves. And we're called to do that too. And not only that, we're called to welcome those who win the need arises, uh, come, come to fight for us. And sometimes that's what we'll do. We'll fight for each other. And sometimes what fighting for each other looks like is fighting with each other, right? But sometimes we have to do that. We have to welcome it. What a great gift the church has been given. We've been given a gospel that stands up in the face of conflict and does not collapse, but instead gives us a way forward. And so I pray that the grace of Christ would give us the courage to live with this sort of ferocity and affection. And may the reason for that be because of how much we love him and we love one another and how much we've been loved by him. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, which is living and active. I thank you for the... uh, peek behind the relational curtain that this passage gives us of Paul showing affection for struggling friends and contending for them, uh, even though sometimes what it looks like is contending against them. Uh, Thank you for the model that we have and the wisdom that we have here in your word that says face-to-face is better 
than any other model for addressing confrontation. Help us to learn how to do that well. Give us the courage to do that. Overcome the parts of us uh, that are so conflict avoidant um, that we would let things uh, wither and struggle and die when maybe all we needed to do was just name it. Um, Help us to build relational capital with one another as a congregation where we trust each other, where we love each other, where we're willing to hear things that can be hard, where we're willing to say things that can be hard. And let us never take that lightly uh, and let us never be um, unnecessarily uh, uh, liberal with words like that. Uh, But let us treat them as sacred. Father, I thank you for the call that you put on my life all those years ago and I thank you that I get to stand here now as a part of it. Uh, It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.